welcome to The Project Space, a podcast featuring some of the remarkable artists who have participated in the Project Space residency here at the Visual Studies Workshop in Rochester, New York. The Project Space residency has served both regional, national, and international artists for many years, providing a studio space and access to VSW facilities. I am Ernest Davis. I'm a visual artist and the Assistant Curator of Education and Public Programs here at VSW. For each episode, I will be in conversation with an artist or two, discuss their background, their practice, and how the Project Space Residency has impacted their works. In this episode, I will be speaking with artists Savannah Wood and Aaron Turner. As residents, Aaron came to VSW from Fayetteville, Arkansas, in July 2020, and Savannah came to VSW in November of 2021 from Baltimore, Maryland. I invited them both to speak together about their work in the archive and how they met through the archive, specifically through one important historic image. We've included reference links to the works Savannah and Aaron discussed in their conversation, including a link to the photographic works over which their paths crossed. Savannah and Aaron are artists with distinct practices that involve rigorous research and deep emotional connections with history. I am very happy to share this conversation about their practices and their time during the VSW Project Space Residency. Hi, my name is Savannah Wood. I was a resident at Visual Studies Workshop in November of 2021. Um, I was born in the Bay Area in Berkeley, California, and grew up mostly in Baltimore, Maryland, where I live now. Um, spent a lot of time in both Los Angeles and Chicago, so I consider those places home as well. The work that I'm doing right now um, artistically is mostly inspired by um, a pretty epic family story. And it coincides with the work that I do um, as like a day job for money also. I work for my family's, um, well, I work for an organization that's related to my family's newspaper business, um, the Afro-American Newspapers, which was founded 130 years ago here in Baltimore. And I'm the executive director of Afro Charities, which is a nonprofit partner to that organization. I like to look at family history and larger world and other histories, particularly from kind of like an embodied perspective uh, as a way of putting myself in places to better understand what happened there and trying to find ways to visualize the felt, the things that are unseen. My name's Aaron Turner, and I am based in Northwest Arkansas. I teach at University of Arkansas, and I grew up in the state of Arkansas. I grew up in West Memphis, Arkansas. If you want to locate that, it's right along the Mississippi River. You look across the river, there's Memphis, Tennessee. Um, so that's where I grew up. Pretty much spent time in that whole tri-state area of Mississippi, Tennessee, and Arkansas. And I like to photograph that area. Uh, specifically the Arkansas and Mississippi Deltas. But I also like to work in the studio to kind of look at the past, uh, to understand the present, to imagine um, the future. Um, I guess theoretically and aesthetically. Yeah, I often feel like I'm stuck in the past. Uh, I like the past. I think it's unresolved. I like to use it because it's interesting. It's most times it's new stuff to me and I just like to reimagine. So um, I like to dive into archives. I love interviewing other artists and I love curating other artists. So uh, I'll stop there. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little bit about me. And thank you both so much for, for doing this and speaking with me and taking time to, uh, to talk and to engage. And I'm extremely excited to talk with you both. I kind of started us off podcasts saying this, but I've been dying to get you two together. I am personally interested in how 
both of your your work and and your lives kind of intersected around the residency. And um, we will get into your individual practices during this conversation because both of you um, were very generous in sending ahead examples of your works and progress and interviews that contextualize your process and provide some insights into um, into your works. And uh, Aaron, Savannah, and I have your gorgeous new book <laughs> that was published through the VSW Press. And we will get to all of that. But first, I'm going to ask a very open question and, and ask if it's fair to say that your practices cross paths. And that's how you first met. That I think it happened on my end anyway. Okay. That was kind of the introduction. Yeah. Yes. So Savannah, how did how did that happen for you and in your practice then? Let's let's talk about the origin story. Sure. Yeah, I was, you know, scrolling on Instagram as one does and happened to see um, a post from Aaron. And I'm not sure how I got there, actually. I don't know why it popped up. I think it was before Instagram was pushing like accounts you might be interested in. So I'm like, I'm not really sure how I ended up there, but. Um, in one of um, Aaron's posts, there was this photograph and I'm like, that's my grandfather. And it was the cover of Aaron's book. So it stopped me in my tracks because I'm like, oh my God, there's my grandfather on the cover of this person's art book. This is wild. I have to know more. So I started digging in a little bit deeper. Um, and, you know, this is all during lockdown pandemic times mm-hmm. too. So I think probably all of us are spending more time on the internet than anybody would yeah. ever care to admit. Um, but yeah, I think I just saw that Aaron had participated in the visual studies workshop and I was like, oh, I wonder what that is. So I did a little bit of digging and from there um, saw that you know, there's archives there, there's dark rooms there, there's all these things that I'm already interested in. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. Let me just send an application and see what happens. So that was sort of um, the entry point. The photo led to uh, a line of inquiry that landed me in Rochester. Yeah. So it's something that I I think is really incredibly wonderful, you know, hearing this from you, Savannah. And I've spoken with Aaron before. So Aaron and I have had conversations around our practices, mainly around abstraction and and, and in getting ready for our, our um for, for talks, been able to to talk about, oh, you know, why do you, why do we do the work that we do? Um and so when I heard that story, the first thing I thought, I'm like, this is this is kind of why Aaron does work. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the things that I think is what Aaron wants to happen with his work. I, it's fascinating to me uh, with with Aaron, with your practice in particular, that it is social, that you are interested in other artists, but also interested in starting conversations. And um, so I kind of saw Savannah, you picking out your grandfather as I'm like, oh, here here is the beginning of a conversation. And so I've kind of like sat back um, and in 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 seeing Savannah how you work and also the work with with Afro charities, seeing that mo- mainly I've been mainly keeping up with you through Instagram, and there are things that happen. And I I left you a a comment on um, an image of the funeral for was it your great grandmother? No, great, like, great, great great grandmother, <laughs> great great your great great grandmother. Yeah, I was I'm like, huh? <laughs> yeah, great great. Yeah, and I just it was this you know, wonderful photo, um, like an, almost like an aerial top-down photograph of the streets just filled with mourners. But a little sliver of the um, information said that it was coming from Bethel AME. And I grew up in Bethel AME, Los Angeles. And so it kind of pulled oh, wow. me in where I'm like, oh my God, Bethel, Baltimore? Yeah. Oh, wow. And so it's, so, so there are those types of things that are happening with, with all of your work. And then thinking about this relationship that Aaron, you're seeking out or hope to happen, you know, it's been wonderful to see that develop. But Aaron, do you have any any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was really happy to uh, receive that interaction um, from Savannah via Instagram and for you to recognize your grandfather in that, in that image. Because I think for me, the way I'm trying to use that image is I don't, I don't want people to forget about the legacy of the Tuskegee Airmen. I think it's a, a very important time in history and um you know world war ii is such a catalyst for a lot of things uh not just the civil rights movement but just so many things in american history and world history um 
and it greatly impacts us today. Um, and then I see these, I see that I came across this image and this is how I use archives. I, I just thought this was a, just a beautiful image, like the tonality of it, the lighting. And I could, I could go out and recruit people and say, oh, let's recreate this photo. But I, I'm not interested in that anymore. I'm interested in extending the legacy uh, of the image, uh, of the people in the image, soliciting other people's thoughts and reactions and opinions on, on viewing an image like that. And I, I take that history and I, I just filter it through uh, systems and processes that I have in place uh, in my series called Black Alchemy. Could you maybe, I mean, I'm I'm realizing that we're talking about something that we've seen, but this is an audio podcast. Could you describe the source image and then yeah. what your um, manipulation of it looks like? Yeah, the source image is, there's a group of um, members of the 332nd Fighter Group pilots. Um, and these is Tuskegee Airmen, I'm during World War II and I came across the, I don't think I originally came across the image on the Library of Congress, but I traced it back to the Library of Congress because mm -hmm. uh, I'll do a general Google search. But the image shows these, these group of gentlemen, I think it looks like they are maybe sitting in a meeting or viewing a projected uh, video in like a conference room. You know, they're going over things maybe before they fly out or go on a run or something like that. But there's about four to five uh, gentlemen present. Uh, and there's a gentleman on the, the left side of the image, uh, Robert W. Williams, which is your grandfather, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you pointed that out to me, the expression on his face, the shadow and the light on his face. There's another gentleman sitting right next to him, kind of leaning on his knee. And just like that closeness, uh, the intimacy there. And then the other gentlemen, like you can see closely gathered around in this room. Um, so I just kind of think that that's the description of the image that maybe I would give. And they're in these leather jackets. One of the, uh, your grandfather has on the kind of like the canvas jacket, the military type jacket with the, um, the animal fur on the collar, which is really nice. I remember growing up uh, having the GI Joe figures and having one of the um, Tuskegee Airmen I always love like the aesthetic of that military garb. But um, yeah, it's just a fascinating image. And I think, I think how I would, I would also categorize that image and how it relates to my practice is I look at the men in this, in this photograph and their stand-ins for, for men, other men in my life that I know now, uh, it could be me. It could be a stand-in for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're really the faces are really familiar in that way and i can think about my uncles and great uncles who served in the military um different branches like the navy and the air force uh and the army um at different periods um in their experience so it's just kind of like this crossover and layering that happens uh, when i look at this image and then i took that image and i projected it onto this abstract installation in my studio. So that was a way for me to sort of take the image and like re-digest it or something or like turn it into my own uh, interpretation, um, transforming it, giving the audience a new way to look at this historical image. And that the lines in it are pretty sharp now that I'm looking at it now, like it breaks up your grandfather's face a little bit, um, but still preserves majority of the image. There's like plywood, there's silk, there's paper, um, and all kind of stuff in there. I think it's a little bit of a C-stand. You can see if you know what to look for. But yeah, it kind of creates this geometric form that this image sits on top. And it's very minimal. It's, it's very minimal. And so, yeah, that's how I would describe that, Savannah. <laughs> and you. for the audience, yeah, no yeah, problem. Thanks. Um, so Savannah, there's something that you said that you were interested in the felt, like the feeling, which makes me think quite a bit about your your video that you sent us in terms of extending a legacy. I found it to be incredibly moving. Yeah, I feel like there's so much, there's always so much backstory to talking about. I mean, because you um, did say, that it's. I think <laughs> epic is a perfect word to talk about with your, with your family. So, oh my yeah. God. <laughs> my brain, you know, I, I always say I have like long view on everything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like in the work that I'm making, I'm not really like, 
concerned so much with art market and production. Mm -hmm. I'm like very much on my own timeline where I'm like, God willing, I'll live to be 80 years old and maybe I'll have an exhibition that makes sense by then, you know, but like in the meantime, it's going to make things I'm supposed to be making. Um, And I wanted to say earlier, I mean, we were talking about like why Aaron makes Aaron's work, you Mm -hmm. know, and like you want the connection and the recognition and to extend the legacy and, and those things. And I think in that um, scrolling and coming across that photograph of my grandfather, like that's why I make my work is because I'm always, they, my ancestors are always showing up. Like they're everywhere (laughs) all the time and telling me what, like nudging me in the direction of what I'm supposed to be doing. It's always like very much coming from that place of there's work to be done. We have stories that we want to tell and we've chosen you to be that person, that vehicle to do that. And then there's an intuitive part to that too. Like the image that you use, I remember I was working on a project about my grandfather's life um, and I was flying home from Chicago and I'm on a Southwest flight and I open up the the magazine and that picture's in it and it's his (laughs) birthday. And I'm just like, what are you supposed to do with that? You know what I mean? Like, except be like, okay, I guess I'm doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing. And when I was living in Chicago, I worked two doors down from, you know, this place where I have a photograph and on the back of it, the address is two doors down from where I was working the whole time I was in Chicago. You know, there's so many synchronicities that I'm just like, okay, I just got to make this thing. I don't know what it is yet. You know? So similarly with the video that I shared with you, um, when I first moved back to Baltimore to work with the Afro's archives, um, I was just kind of like getting immersed in the collection and trying to have a better understanding, like wrap my head around what's there. I mean, it's 130 years of black history. There's 3 million photographs in the collection. So mm-hmm. it's it's massive. Um, and so really just trying to get a sense of it. And part of the origin story of the newspaper is, um, that my great-great-grandmother, whose funeral photo we were talking about earlier, that she lent her husband $200 to start the newspaper. And both of them had been born enslaved. So in my head, I'm thinking, where did she have $200 to do this? You know, that's a question that I had never had answered before. Mm -hmm. Um, And one day I'm in the archives and I open up this box and my answer was there. It's like, there's a whole scrapbook um, from her funeral and mm-hmm. those photographs that I shared were in the back of the scrapbook. But on the first page was an entire obituary for her, mm-hmm. um, which mentioned that her father had been a wealthy landowner, hmm. but he had also been enslaved. So I'm like, okay, more questions, you know? Yes. So it's just like the deeper you go, the more questions you find. So it's really just been a, a process of inquiry. And um, the video that I shared with you is like an initial sketch or exploration into that backstory of how her family came to own the land where they had been enslaved mm-hmm. um, and kind of the repercussions of some of their decisions that they had made, you know, six, seven generations ago mm-hmm. and how that's affecting um, our family now. So, you know, when I talk about like the feeling and the sensation, there's so many things that we cannot know based on the archival and historical record, but there's also this invisible, intuitive, um, ancestral connection that's very real. And so how can we talk, how can we use both of those things um, to tell a complex story about a complex history and you know how I think like the form of experimental documentary which we've seen more and more of is one that I'm leaning into as I expand that project um, to encompass more of our familial diaspora and more of this history and it is really epic I mean there's a huge span of time there's Mm -hmm. so many wars that have happened and you know like there's just there's all this land that's involved. It spans into Canada also. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's just so much that this story holds and reflects back about American history um, that I'm really excited to dig into more. But it's also just like, how the hell do you tell that story? You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like succinctly, maybe it's not succinct, but, you know, where do you start? Yeah. I mean, I was kind of thinking about that in terms of how it just sort of any story you can think about that um, mm. in terms of a, of a, of a still photograph 
that there is so much complexity and so much contextualization that goes into it, especially if it's something that you're living and experiencing Mm -hmm. in a way that involves a lot of these feelings, a lot of this, you know, like this, uh, you know, uh, synchronicity of opening up a magazine on a plane, you're in, you're in transit, transitioning somewhere else and having certain things line up in a way where, um, it, 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 it grabs you in a way that's not vis- very physical and, and not visible at all, but also right. something that, how do you explain this to the person sitting next to you on the plane? <laughs> or even how do you explain this to someone else in your family who might not be paying as close attention? Or how do you explain this to, you know, so, so I, and so in terms of, or do you, yes, you exactly. know, because that's Erin, yeah. that's a question I wanted to ask for you also, like clearly you're doing the research behind these images to have a sense of who are the people that are represented? Mm-hmm. What are the histories that they're bringing to the frame of the image? But we don't necessarily know all of those details as a viewer. So I wonder yeah. how important it is um, with, you know, I, I know in your book, you talked a little bit about having a critique from somebody about um, using MLK in your images because he's so recognizable, but with some of the less recognizable characters who show up, how do you feel about like the audience's engagement with those images and whether or not they need to be legible on a historical level? You know what, I always, that's a great question. And I, I always go back and forth on that because, you know, we do have these historical figures and um, there's just tons of images that you can use from them. But I think that was a really good critique and feedback that I got, uh, even though it was hard to accept at the time, um, just because I was in my own head. And I'm like, how can you not see uh, this thing that I'm trying to say? But that's the difficulty of like communication and um, like what makes it what makes it fun to be an artist like the challenge of communicating uh, to other people but then I, it part of me feels like you know I can't really control it all I can do as an artist is try to put out work uh, and this is this is my goal I try to put out work that as many people as possible can enter um, and have an opinion about so sometimes I don't give all the information if I'm ever in the space with the work, I will talk you to death <laughs> about, <laughs> about the origin, but that's where the speculation and the future aesthetics come in to my work because I have to present it in a way where you can sit with it, where the viewer can sit with it and I have to trust the viewer to interpret it um, because I'm not always gonna be there uh, alongside it. And I, I also think using more unrecognizable faces kind of uh also helps the everyday part because everyone's not into art you know what i mean like everyone's not everyone doesn't go to school get an mfa or anything like that but that doesn't mean that they can't look at art and have an opinion so that that goes back to like me trusting the, the viewer but if they see themselves in the work just the everyday person the everyday image the everyday archive the family the album image i think that says something too about who can have access to art, who can be depicted in art, what matters in art. So I think uh, showing the everyday person is important uh, within um, art, the art historical context, uh, contemporarily and, you know, whatever era you want to jump back and forth to. Um, That's kind of how I look at it. I think all of us want to control people's thoughts. (laughs) We want that, like, that's like a secret superpower maybe all of us want. But, you know, that's never really going to be the case um, unless you really just can mesmerize people with sounds and frequencies, which people Mm do. (laughs) That's another conversation. I don't know if I want to control their thoughts. I feel like I'm just the most stuff I'm making is like I'm just making it because I want to make it like it's kind (laughs) of like healing for me. It's very selfish, actually. Like I need them to understand enough that they'll participate in it (laughs) but and like hopefully they'll get something out of it on the back end but it's kind of like you know the way that because I'm interacting with this newspaper archive all the time um I'm kind of just imagining it like it's for the future I don't know it's for somebody who I might not have met yet you know it's like with the work that I'm making right now I'm dropping all of these things in there that matter to me about the story. And I'm like, maybe somebody will see this as like a, you know, a treasure map one day. Maybe they won't get any of it at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I can do, um, I can do the logical thing of like writing the chronology and, you know, like writing an article about it. I could do that part, but the, like the felt, the spiritual aspects of it, 
the right person will get it. I guess that's part of like, I'm in my, I'm in my little lab doing my own thing, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. instead of like, I'm, I'm not showing the work all the time. Um, yep. So that's a different approach that I'm, mm-hmm, you know, but also like when I was at visual studies workshop, the whole time I was just in the dark room, I was like, this is really, I'm just trying to make this as indulgent as possible. Like so much of the work that I do on a day-to-day basis for like my life livelihood is for yeah. other people. Mm-hmm. So in my artwork is like where I go to be as selfish as I feel like it. Yeah. You know, to like replenish myself. And that that dark room is magical. Um that's why I like talking to Ernest too, because you really got that, you know, that dark room is a it's a magic place. I've been in the dark room a lot recently myself within this last year or so, uh, after not doing it <clears throat> for a long time. But uh I I remember making this one image for an open call and I titled it in a dark room. And I think I put in parentheses, the only place a black man could be free is in a dark room. Mm. And it was, uh, it was just like this contemplation on like being in a dark void and being alone or feeling alone, Mm -hmm. but also feeling empowered too. And it was just like, kind of like, um, I don't know if it was smart or not, but <laughs> it I was just love it. <laughs> something that I would, that I kind of came up with uh, at a time, you know, right at the end of grad school. And I was, I was working in the dark room a lot then, but it is the really, the, the one place that, you know, all my thoughts were clear uh-huh. and everything mm-hmm. like that. Cause you, we all have to walk outside and just live daily life and you have interactions with people and you internalize them. Um, and I bring all that back to the studio. Um, and I try to deal with that in my title titling mm. and deal with that in, in the images that I select and, and the conversations that I want to have with people. Really, my images are just conversation starters, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I just put them out there and I'm like, I think this is interesting enough and recognizable enough. People will want to talk about it um, and then we can go some other places. But yeah, so like I like how you describe the studio as a lab because mm. uh, it can be a factory it could be a bunch of things. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm kind of in transition with this relationship with the dark room, but in, in I characterize in a way that I, I don't know if it is rings true for, for you two, but this idea of being indulgent in a dark room and also seeing it as a place of freedom and um, as well as uh, this, this notion of control or even relinquishing control. <laughs> I, th- I think the dark room is this wonderful place that I learned and also gravitated towards because I saw it um, as a place of extreme order and such mm. great control and something that was emphasized in all of my, you know, photo 101 and 201, you know, like color and dark room and, and black and white, just this idea of being so precise and very rigid and an approach to what's a good photograph, what's a bad photograph or technique. Um, and so what's, what's really kind of wonderful is that it, you know, the way the two of you guys engage or even grapple with that as a, as a place of freedom, um, or as a place of, um, you know, relinquishing, but also, uh, it, you know, and I'll say for me, it is a place where I'm learning, how to not want to control people's thoughts because I I Mm -hmm. do have that tendency and I purposefully make it a choice to actively ignore the viewer because that is where I I go and thinking of the dark room as a place that can be this place for massive control and and Mm -hmm. in a wonderful way and maybe sometimes Mm -hmm. in a detrimental way but a wonderful place to think think about yourself and and to have this wonderful sense of selfishness also a place where you can have, you know, beautiful mistakes or wonderful mm-hmm. surprises or these ideas that come to how are you, how are you going to title or how does this help me in the next step? Uh, what mm-hmm. can I take from this experience? And it, it, it's, and so the way you guys are talking about it, I think it's, it's, it talks about the flexibility of just working in such a, in such a way. It's so been so long. Yeah. I mean, it's just been so, <laughs> had been so long since I've been in a dark room. Um, you know, because of the demands of like my work life, I could only be at the residency for two weeks and that felt indulgent, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, um, yeah. So I just knew I was like, well, 
I'm not focused on perfect prints. I just am going to make this thing. Like I'm just going to mm -hmm. be in here. It's really about the process and about like the play and mm -hmm. touch and the time to think about the images and that experience. Um, I was, you know, for part of this project, it's really just been exploration so far. So I was able to go out to this land that they were in, my family was enslaved on and spend time there. Mm -hmm. um, and during the early stages, of, I went there for the first time right before the lockdown happened. So it became like a refuge during this period when you couldn't be near people, but I yeah. could be outside and like be very near to this history mm -hmm. and embody that. And, and again, it's like all really about this like embodiment to truly understand what this place is like, what yeah. the temperatures like, what the sounds are, what the smells are. So little had changed, you know, the houses that they lived in were still there in various states of deterioration. There's a family cemetery there. There's just like so much, it's so rich. You know, most of the photographs that are in the Afro archives are, were taken on a four by five press camera. And so one of the things that I was thinking through was like, you know, I'm touching all these images all day. I have no idea like how they were truly made. I'd worked mm. with like a four by five camera in undergrad, but it was um, in studio and like on the rails. So yeah. I hadn't like had a handheld four by five camera ever before. So I ordered one off eBay and like, that's how I spent a lot of time during the early stages of the pandemic was really just going out to the site and, and seeing these images in this on this scale and feeling what it feels like to take an image in that way. Yeah. Um, which is like how most of the stuff was made that I'm handling all the time. And it's just, you know, it's just like the, again, the indulgence is just yeah. getting into it, you know, and like feeling the materials and, you know, saying, fuck it, I'm going to just spend this money on getting this film developed, you know, <laughs> like I'm not going out to eat, you know, yeah. it's like, I'm not traveling anywhere. I'm not buying any new clothes besides sweatpants. So yeah. let me just like get into this. So, you know, if I'm going to have a four by five negative, I should try to print it. Yeah. So, you know, when I got to the, um, the residency, I was like, well, let me just try printing this, see what yeah. happens, see what comes of it. And then looking at the contact sheets, I was like, this is rad, you know, because <laughs> you have like these like four by five images um, from the contact sheet, you know, which I'm just like, this is very nice, like to have, to, yeah. to handle and to make it, to bring it more into the physical. So much of my photography recently, because I haven't been focused on um, exhibition has been mostly digital and not tactile. So mm -hmm. it really got me back into a more tactile space of touching prints and arranging and seeing how things could work together. Yeah, which was great. It was a gift. And I know, Aaron, you were in between semesters. There's only like a limited amount of time that you're able to do residencies as well. How did that experience here affect how you started moving? through your process after you left the residency? For me, when I was there, I um, it's I had been doing it for a number of years anyway already, kind of like this. I teach. Like right now, I'm in the middle of the fall semester. I don't really have time to make any new work. Like, I just don't. Uh, the capacity for it kind of goes down. <laughs> right. You have to do, you get to pull so many different directions. Yeah. But I always try to get one residency a year if I can. Um, and that's that's usually my one of my number one priorities. So I can get away for a certain amount of time and actually get something done. So I learn how to absorb, absorb, absorb when I'm not making things. And then when I get the opportunity to just free up my time, I just make, 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 make. So when I was at VSW, um, I had planned to, you know, print in the dark room and develop my own film, but it didn't work out like that. But what I did do is I used the dark room space as a backdrop, as a studio space. I made images inside the dark room in the enlarger stations using a, a digital projector and they're projecting in this space mm -hmm. and recording it with a four by five camera and that four by five camera is, is special i love the way you came to that savannah you really have to come to it on your own uh, once you do you really never leave it behind but i love the four by five camera and, uh, i think when i was at vsw i was really invested in douglas frederick douglas mm -hmm. trying to understand that legacy so i took a bunch of different images just kept projecting, kept making new ones. And I think maybe I made like uh, 80 or 100 new images. Mm -hmm. And then sure, I just loaded film. I think I took a hundred pack of film and I'm like, I'm gonna use all this film. Mm -hmm. And when I'm done with it, I'm done with it. And then this is my new batch of images to work with over the next year or so. Yeah. Now, um, 
two of those images are in a show from that time now. And then I'm doing another installation now. It'll be in Chicago in two months, but I took this Douglas image and this was from, I had this idea maybe two years ago, two and a half years ago to take this one Douglas image and then just repeated in these different processes. So Van Dyke, mm-hmm. cyanotype, gelatin silver, mm-hmm. platinum, photo emulsion on glass, mm-hmm. uh, dry pet plate contact print, uh, lumen print. Mm-hmm. So it's about nine to 10 processes. And I didn't really know how I was going to get it done. But fortunately, this opportunity came along. I'm, it's going to be done soon. Uh, okay. But, oh, and also a daguerreotype. Mm-hmm. I got daguerreotypes made. Did you make the daguerreotypes or you had them made? I didn't. I had them commissioned. I was about to say. Like, I would like <laughs> to that know process, how you did that. <laughs> that process, like, I, I tried to Google it. And, you know, you got to have specialized equipment and all this kind of yeah. stuff to do that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's available, but it's really something to take on. So I was like, I like collaborating with people anyway. So mm-hmm. I'm glad I was able to find somebody to work with to make that happen. Yeah, so it was just like having these ideas that you don't let go and finding time to make them happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Yep. Uh, so I think residencies are very important. And I go to my studio every day and I think in the studio, I read in the studio, I write in the studio, and I contemplate and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I make a new image there and here and there, but bulk of my work is done in residencies and in these stretches of uh, short periods of time. And then I'll think about it for a one or two year period and let opportunities come along and different things like that. Uh, so that's kind of how I've operated my practice for the last few years and how I utilize residencies. And um, also just as a person and how my personality is like um, it, I really value relaxation and I vi- really value labor. Because, What's your sign? Uh, oh, I'm a cancer. <laughs> just asking. Um <laughs> I I really value those things. There was a bunch of pictures that I made. I actually had was using this material called pulp board, and you have to take a paintbrush and you dip it in water and you manip- you wet that material and you manipulate it and you mm-hmm. you form it and then you dry it. So mm-hmm. I was projecting on all these different sculptural pulp board cool. things that I was making. Um, so that was very laborious and just setting up the camera, moving it, focusing it. Uh, thinking mentally the labor and moving the projector around trying to get it the heat of the projector Mm -hmm. start sweating in the studio (laughs) environment so it's like I'll do that for a long period of time and it's like it's time to go eat (laughs) and then then, you know I get that relaxation and I'm ready to go back to the studio at night and keep working Mm -hmm. and so it's just like intense periods of working Mm -hmm. relaxation intense periods of working relaxation that's how I live my life uh, and that kind of gets into other things like people in my family. My great grandfather was a sharecropper. His sons, which are my grand, which is my grandfather and great great uncles, mm-hmm. they used to pick cotton and take it over to the cotton exchange in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. My grandfather didn't want to do that. He didn't want to go to college. He drove tanker trucks delivering gasoline. Mm-hmm. Eighteen wheeler drive. He worked at industrial factories and stuff like that. But you know, he was really never the type that really wanted to work for anybody. But um, about it. You know, he's no longer living. Um, but um, this is my mom's father that I'm talking about, my uh, maternal grandfather. But, uh, you know, he could he could build a house from scratch. He knows the electricity. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever taught him. He knows how to do plumbing. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody ever taught him to do that. So really being able to work with his hands and be able to carve out a living for himself and be independent. Um, so I still kind of take those characteristics. And I if I can do it by myself, I would do it. Mm-hmm. But I do value collaborating with people at the same time, because I still think that provides a level of independence as well, like recognizing mm-hmm. where your skills fall short and where you need to in- include other people in the process uh, and all that kind of stuff. So I'll stop rambling yeah. there, but that's kind of how I think about using residencies and kind of what I was thinking about a visual studies workshop. And one, I, I'll say one more thing. I'm sorry, a lot. Um <laughs> When you were talking about your family, I was watching this video, a very beautiful video, hard to get and dear, uh, dear paid for mm. um, Savannah. But um, the story of Enoch George Howard, which is your relative, right? Your descendant. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, I love how you talked about the constellation of the freckles 
Like that was amazing. Oh. Um, but just knowing, like, I think I wrote down understanding who you are. I, from the mm-hmm. age of five and six, I have sat around these holiday tables. Yes. And my paternal grandfather and my dad uh, did all this research going all the way back to England. This white family who owned our first descendant that came to be. Uh, the name Samuel is very popular in my family and has been passed down. My nephew is the fifth. Hmm. <laughs> so yeah. that name has been passed down. But it's like, who owned the first Samuel? Or where, how did the first Samuel come to be? And I know all that information. I've known all that information since I was five, six years old. And then I walk around with that knowledge, understanding who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've I've heard these stories in my family about land ownership and, and how it was lost and stuff like that. So I'm so excited and just happy to hear that you're, it's still in your family. It's actually not. It's not? Oh, okay. No. I was thinking, okay. No, right, it's yeah. owned. It's owned by the state of Maryland. So the wow, Maryland okay. um, Department of Natural Resources owns it. Um, okay. But which means that it's ex- publicly accessible, mm. and you know they've owned it for a long time, mm-hmm, but and mm-hmm. they haven't done anything with it. And mm. in fact, parts of it have deteriorated further from where yeah. it was before because of that neglect, basically. Um, but recently, yeah, they got some funding to kind of maintain this land and the the folks who I've been working with there to get access to certain parts of the site and like learn how to get out there have been wonderful to work with Mm -hmm. um but yeah it's not in the family anymore okay yeah Yeah. but I'm glad to know where it is and that you know it's still publicly accessible Um, yeah just to even know that I think is just powerful to just have that knowledge yeah it, it, I, it changes who you are yeah it does yeah i mean it changes how you move through the world and how mm-hmm. you relate to history too you know it's like if i had a better understanding of these things when i was coming up through you know public school maybe i would have a different kind of connection to that history or maybe mm-hmm. not i mean like mm-hmm. maybe i needed mm-hmm. to get to a certain age to care about any of those things you know and to like actually dig more deeply into that but to have a sense of like they bought this land during the civil war changes the way that I under that I understand how, what was going on there, um, you know, and how that history unfolded. Yeah. So it's just makes for a certain kind of like intimacy with history when you mm-hmm. have access to your own family's stories and yeah. can plot that along a timeline. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it shifts the way that we relate to space, which actually I wanted to talk a little bit about because I'm so glad you brought up Frederick Douglass earlier. One of the things that was kind of, um, I mean, it wasn't really a revelation, but it was a revelation in a way was just recognizing that this region of New York was such a um, haven for, you know, Black refugees of slavery, essentially. Um, And thinking about specifically the trajectory of Marylanders through that Mm -hmm. part of Mm -hmm. the world onto Canada specifically Frederick Douglass, specifically Harriet Tubman, like two major figures of American history who both came out of Maryland, um, out of slavery in Maryland and Mm -hmm. settled and died in that region. Um, And then with the story that I'm working on, two of the family members who lived on this land escaped to Canada on the Underground Railroad. And their descendants are settled in the Niagara region. Yes. It's like what yes (laughs) you know what I mean like huh you know so I'm just imagining you know the the timelines of these things and like did they know Frederick Douglass did they know Harriet Tubman like what is this you know like the Underground Railroad is a is a thing obviously there are set routes that people would take but all and there's you know word of mouth for how to get through these spaces but just thinking about those connections and um I think Canadians have a better sense of that history Uh, Black Canadians have a better sense of that history than Black Americans. We tend to just focus so much on the United States as if the borders have always been so fixed um, without really thinking about that. We literally have cousins just, you know, like right there. (laughs) I am personally fascinated by that. I think we briefly talked about this before you left that I like I lived in Toronto for a summer. I knew that there were for instance, like AME churches up there. Mm -hmm. But the only one that I could find was in the middle of nowhere between Toronto and Niagara Falls. And I had to take a bus. I don't know how I got there, but 
some weird bus route um, in this very small town. And I, and I also. Was it Hamilton by any chance? Was it, it wasn't Hamilton. It wasn't, it wasn't okay. like, it wasn't any city that I can Or St. Catharines is what I meant. Actually. Oh no, it wasn't St. Catharines. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't St. Catharines, but it might've been in that area. Okay. And, um, and, and there was like some museum there that I'd heard about, but all the black, or I would say the descendants of slaves, descendants of slaves from, from the States were in like Nova Scotia or mm. Saskatchewan. <laughs> and I'm like, where mm-hmm. are they? I couldn't find any, anyone who uh, was a descendant of a, of a slave in the, in North America, in the, in any city. And, um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and and I always was confused for being a very recent immigrant because there was mainly just people who immigrated from um, from the continent or from the Caribbean. And um, one of my favorite things was when someone I was like, "Oh yeah, so how long has your family been here?" I'm like, mm, "I don't know, like 400 years." They go, "Whoa, right. how?" And I'm like, "Slavery?" Like, like what? what? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you impressed by that? I'm like, wow, 400 years. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm learning. I'm like learning every day, you know, and I've just recently connected with some of those family members. There's apparently been family reunions that have been happening since I was born. And I had no idea between yeah. the, the family in Canada and the family in the U.S. Um, and but yeah, I mean, when I'm in talking to one cousin, um, he was saying that there has been a, it's actually a very large population of people descended from people who had been enslaved in Maryland, specifically in parts of Ontario. So it's like a very well-traveled and well-known route. Um, and my understanding, and I might be like, don't hold me to this, but my understanding is that a lot of the black folks who are in Nova Scotia came actually earlier. So more, more there might've been some who were earlier in Ontario as well, mm-hmm. but some, part of that big push was around the time that the Fugitive Slave Act came into being in 1850. And so it's yeah. like, instead of just coming to New York, you had to actually go to another country. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. folks who were in Nova Scotia, if I'm understanding this correctly, and this is clearly a generalization, um, may have come even earlier and helped the British fight the war of 1812, which is, so the British were like, okay, great. Thanks so much. You're free, but don't live anywhere near us. We're going to put yeah. you in Nova Scotia and like relocated people there. So that was, that's part of that history. Um, Again, don't quote me, do your own research, but I, these are know, like my my broad strokes I, of recollection from my recent inquiries but, into this. Yeah. You know? Sure, sure. But also like that that you have this, you know, this first person familial experience as well, I think is 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 a part of that. Like that is, yeah. that's fact. That's why I'm interested. You yeah. Know? So it's like, again, it's like you have this understanding of self and understanding of family. And then you're like, oh, I want to know more about how this happened. Yes. What were the conditions yeah. that allowed for this to happen? Yeah. So yeah. I actually traveled to um, Ontario earlier this month. I don't even know wow. what day it is, y'all. Earlier this month <laughs> and um, was intending to interview some cousins there, but they were unfortunately sick. And so hmm. with, one with COVID. And so I had to cancel shoots as like an expensive extravaganza. <laughs> <laughs> but I did get to see um, the Niagara Falls and the Niagara River. And supposedly they swam across the Niagara River to get wow. to Canada. And I'm just mm. like, you know, there's so many different portions of that river that could have been the place where you swam across, but parts of it, yes, I, I can't are pretty, pretty choppy. That's rough, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, other parts are a little calmer, but you know, it's just so just going and being there and like again seeing the water, trying to understand like what that physical experience might have been like, you know, yeah. what it could have looked like at that time. All of those things helped me to better picture what that human experience could have been. Yeah. And when I was there, actually, I was like by the river's edge as I was leaving, um, I, I noticed that somebody had um, left offerings at the river's edge, like mm. facing towards America. And I was like, OK, mm. so there's somebody already like coming to yes. this exact spot and doing this similar work of like trying to retrieve and to honor people who have come across this way. You know, so it's mm-hmm. just there's so much connection and there's so many like little vestiges of that history that you can pick up on if you're looking for it. Mm-hmm. That makes me think of, and Aaron, I would like for you to respond, um, but, but, um, but, bef- but before I ask you to do that, it makes me think of some of, of your, of your video and you're speaking over it. 
there is a narrative where you're we're speaking about the land and in your family, but you're also asking these questions. And there are also these what I, I'll call dichotomies, um, mm. fact versus knowledge and past versus present, price versus true cost, seen mm. versus known, like these things that kind of squash time together mm-hmm. and also interrogate this complexity around our experience with history and our in and with this felt that you're talking about before because it it gives me chills to think about someone giving putting offerings on the side of the river yeah i mean it personalizes the history because then you're you're standing there with your body imagining what if i were to get in the fucking water right now and swim across and like i'm not even concerned about somebody seeing me yes in fact, yeah. I hope they see me. So if yes. I start to drown, somebody comes and gets me. But yes. it's like, I have to yeah. do this in the cover of night. Yeah. Probably in the winter. Cause yes. that's what a lot of, like, just like all of those considerations yeah. just bring the history to the forefront in a way that a book, I mean, like, you know, a history book could never, but mm-hmm. a, a work of fiction, a work of literature might. Part of the reason why I think it's so important to actually go to these sites and to like put your own body in these places yeah um so you can have that visceral experience and so you can connect with the humanity of history otherwise it just seems so abstract and and when you are physically there then the reality of it you know is kind of becomes kind of undeniable i think i've been thinking the whole time just thinking about land and like landscape like going places physically i think it's so important to do that Um, because i think sometimes like if you take a picture or video of like land like it can be it can be so abstract and then so generalized oh i think there's a personal existence in relationship to all land and when we figure that out it adds value and just i don't know makes it that much more interesting so i just Mm. feel like any any place that you walk any land that you occupy or any land that you're aware of there is a personal history there before you even showed up yeah um and i think things stay and linger around um there's things that you can feel if you're like present in a place versus looking at a picture of a place mm-hmm. you um know, yeah so sorry that's how I'm i think about it right now yeah i'm yeah. like so <laughs> at this land in maryland the parks um did an archaeological dig there and the team that was doing that, one of the things that was like the most fascinating thing I've ever heard <laughs> was that sometimes if they're, you know, if they think that there might be a burial site somewhere, mm-hmm. they'll have dogs that are trained to smell a particular chemical that is absorbed by trees that are planted near grave sites. Oh my God. And that the trees literally absorb the chemicals of decomposing bodies and emit this smell from people who were buried like long time ago, <laughs> you know, like a lot, but it's still literally in the earth. Yeah. And so when when we're just like, wow. you know, humans only know, we can only experience so much of what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times because we just like shut ourselves down from actually connecting to all of our other senses, we've mm-hmm. limited it to five, but it's like, mm-hmm. there's so much that's imperceptible to us yeah. either because of how we've shut ourselves down or because it just is physiologically. So that's what part of what I'm interested in too, is like, what are all of these other ways of knowing, mm-hmm. um, that exceed what we've accepted as like the standard for historical knowledge and historical understanding without falsifying it right like you know showing the showing the methods showing your work like in a in a math problem like this is how i got to this point but you know i'm using different tools Mm -hmm. yes Uh, i've been looking into like uh, micro rhythm and micro timing Mm -hmm. um there's just something about music that I'm just now understanding. And I'm working on an exhibition right now. It has to do with music. And I'm really trying to trying to share my interest with other people about music because uh, the micro timing and the micro rhythm, and this is relating to just where uh, Savannah left off, mm-hmm. <laughs> like these things that you feel like these other senses and stuff. And I think music is closest to what you were just describing. Mm. Um, 
because it immediately puts you there. And so that's why I've been trying to deal with it. A lot of my titles of my pieces have, I'll take song titles and parts of song lyrics and I'll title my piece um, based on that. That's how important music is to me. Um, and I think it's powerful, more powerful than any visual image that I could ever create. But I make visual images to try to emulate how music feels. Mm. And that's the best I can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Because I just, you just can't outdo music as a visual artist, uh, but you can incorporate it into your practice. And that's what I'm trying to do now. Um, I won't get too much into it, but I'm, I'm still working on it. But um, I, the reason I was, the reason I'm using that is I had this exhibition called Backwards and Forwards uh, at Lightwork a few years ago. And I was trying to talk about how you move backwards and forwards in time, like how pictures do that, archives do that, history does that. Being living in the past and the present simultaneously imagine the, imagining the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think music does that through sampling and innovation and different things like that. Like I love sampling. I love identifying samples in music. I love what producers do with with uh, chopping different things. Archives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i'm into all that what vinyl like if you know anything about vinyl mm-hmm. like when when vinyls were pressed that was like it's almost like saying it was a mono print in a way uh because that, that was a one-off thing like each vinyl like that etching that sound into that mm-hmm. however that process happened that was really like a one-off thing uh but savannah you talking about those other senses and that connection to land and other things happening all at the same time that we can't really see, but we can kind of feel. Um, I think music is part of that um, and words and stuff and all that kind yeah. of stuff too. That's the best I can describe it now, but I'm trying to make work about it uh, at this very moment. But yeah, that's that's just kind I of think, where I am. Yeah, I think the only other thing that kind of comes close to that ephemeral thing is smell. You know, like oh, when you yeah. think about like pheromones, for instance, mm-hmm. or like like smelling something that smell is always kind of recognized for um, triggering memory, that's very mm-hmm. specific memories. Yep. And, you know, yeah, the ways that we understand fear and like how that relates to our like somatic body. I think yeah. music and smell kind of operate in some, somewhat similar ways where it's kind of beyond our grasp, but can influence us in mm-hmm. ways that we didn't expect. Yeah. It's a metaphor. It's, it's mm. like metaphorical for history. Like you, it mm-hmm. takes you back and forth. Mm-hmm. We do that visually and we, um, we do that introspectively. Like, you know, even talking about visceral, just like, I, I'm mm. kind of curious about the like thoughts on this yeah cover of oh, your yeah. of your book I'm yeah <laughs> that was I mean obviously that's the first thing that you yeah. experience and it's so unusual and so delightful so, <laughs> so describe it I'm, I'm holding Aaron's book <laughs> and it's got this velvety cover and on the cover um are these silver shapes of the these are studio objects like these are kind of like yeah these, these it's are, actually um it's it's one of the images from that series but that that's like one of the images where it's like, you know, inverted and, you know, isolated those objects because they were in like a void. I, can't, I think they were in a black void. It was a back. The background was like suede or uh, mm-hmm. velvet. Like, I really love those materials. I like how they absorb light. I like how they feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted the viewer who holds the book to experience those. And it kind of goes back to music a little bit, too, because um I didn't really appreciate books because I just thought they were like ridiculously expensive to make. And I was like, I'm never going to be able to make one of those. <laughs> but somehow I was fortunate to to get the opportunity to do that. Now I understand how it works. But I really see books as albums, hmm. like how you work on something for a while and like you figure out this is the way I want to share this. Because mm-hmm. I don't really use social media that much. And don't really communicate that way i really believe in seeing people face to face or connecting with people like this like with a purpose um um, and so that's why how i wanted to make my book uh i wanted to be something people i wanted the size to be a particular way so people could carry it with them i wanted you to understand the materials that i was using and that cover that cover can like pick up stuff stuff sticks to it uh your fingerprints are probably on it some way 
but when you touch it and feel it, I want it to be a certain reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's what those particular um, that particular project and that particular book is supposed to embody. Uh, it's supposed to be a long lasting experience. So every time you pick it up, you can you can have an experience with it. Um, it's very specifically edited. Mm-hmm has very specific information in it. And that's that's where it specifically lives. You know, I don't really have it on my webpage or anything like that, but it's like, you get the book, you know. Mm-hmm. If you don't have it, you gotta go get it. <laughs> yeah, a book is like a perfect container. Yeah. yeah. I love books. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I really like them now. I'm working on a third one. But yeah, I really try to make them, I really try to spend time with them. You know, D'Angelo took, what, 10 years between that last album and uh, the Black Vanguard album. So like uh, the way that these, the way the musicians work is really similar to like visual artists. Like, the, I mean, you really, I understand why our, uh, musicians are so picky mm-hmm. um, and so specific about what they do. And, you know, thinking about Prince playing all the instruments <laughs> and producing the whole song and, not being satisfied with the way other people do things. So he just did it all himself. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, that, yeah, I'm really into music and how that is a metaphor for visual things. Um, so that's why I kind of volumize my works. Yeah. And then everything else, like this book is what I would consider an LP or an EP. It's not the full album, but it's mm-hmm. what I've been doing in between. And this third book that I'm working on is the first album. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's, it's the first album of Black Alchemy, basically. That whole series. So it's a very specific thing with a very specific set of pictures mm-hmm. from volumes one, two, and three of Black Alchemy. It's very specific writing in there and very specific design. After that's out, I'm going to work on the next one. <laughs> so, All yeah. right. Well, it's good to know. Um, Savannah, is there anything um, to say about where you're, where you're thinking about your project going and any trajectory that you would like to share? Sure. Um, I mentioned um, the video that I shared with you that's about four minutes is mm-hmm. kind of like a sketch. Yeah. It's like a first attempt, first pass at getting some of these ideas down. Um, so I'm expanding that into a short experimental documentary and I've never really made film before. I've never worked with any kind of crew or anything like that. So it's, uh, it's just like, again, I kind of get these like nagging, like it needs to be more, it needs to be better. It needs to be X, Y, and Z. You yeah. need to, you know, it's like in my ear. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'm going to apply for the grant. I'm going to, you know, and then it's like, I get the grant. I'm like, oh, that means I got to make the thing and there's timelines. And so it's like, that's my way of working where it's, if I don't have a deadline, it's Mm -hmm. not happening probably. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to have a film sometime probably next year. Oh, amazing. And my hope is, um, so I will be sharing it with people. I don't know who's going to, you know, who knows what's going to happen. I'm going to, here's what I'll say. I'm going to shoot the whole film by sometime next year. Hopefully it will also be edited and ready to be shown sometime next year as well, but we'll see. Amazing. Wonderful. Like, oh, the squeeze of deadlines and obligations. Like, it's just, it's, I know. It's and like, I'll be trying to wriggle out like, well, <laughs> I thought we were only saying we had to do X, Y, and Z by this time. You know, the technicalities of it. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Well, that's great. Um, yeah. This has been, a, it's been wonderful to hear you both speak about what you're doing and also the wanderings of, of how it's associating together, but also, of course, distinct, <laughs> distinctly in, in how you both are approaching your works. And I'm really excited. I'm so excited. Uh, and yeah. no pressure, without pressure, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. I'm really excited to see y'all's work. Me progress. too, Ernest. <laughs> <laughs> for Aaron's work, for my own, like, yeah. we'll see. <laughs> yes, I really am. Um, and, and, and thank you both. So Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Aaron, so good to meet you. Yeah, very nice to meet you as well. Yeah, this is, I could talk to you out for a few more hours. This is when you start. I know. You know, <laughs> we go to the grocery store, get some food, <laughs> cook some soul food, and have a conversation. Yeah. <laughs>
encourage you to visit Savannah and Aaron's websites to see more of their work. Those sites are savannahwood.info and aaronturner.studio. As Savannah mentioned, she is the executive director of Afro Charities, where she's doing the extraordinary work of creating programming around and increasing access to the Afro-American newspaper archive. You can also find Aaron having in-depth and thoughtful conversations with other photographers on his own podcast project called The Photographers of Color Podcast. Aaron's book EP, There May Still Be Time Left, is available now at the VSW online bookstore. All of those links are in the show notes. As for the Visual Studies Workshop, please visit us at vsw.org, where we have information about the project-based residency and more info about upcoming events, both in person and online. Follow us on Twitch and Instagram at the Visual Studies Workshop. And feel free to send me an email at ernestdavis at vsw.org. This podcast is funded in part by the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of the New York State Legislature. And thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Savannah Wood and Aaron Turner. Stay tuned for the next episode. And until then, take care. Bye.